Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to the fourth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, where we will continue to be looking together at this fourth chapter, verses 8 through 18 this morning. Galatians 4, 8 through 18. You can find that passage on page 1143 in your pew Bibles. As we've looked together over the last several weeks now at this letter of Paul to the Galatians, I have on a few different occasions tried to point out that the tone that exists in this letter is much like that of a father to his beloved child. It's one we can probably relate with. At times, Paul's tone is angry. At other times, it is encouraging and loving. At times, it is shocked, perhaps even disappointed. And at times, it is fearful of what has been done by his beloved sheep. His tone changes in severity in different places throughout the letter, but it remains steadfast in moving towards a definitive end. Paul has not simply written in the pages of this letter a hostile or overly stern rebuke meant simply to dismiss the foolishness of the Galatians, to point out their error and tell them to fix it or else. But the entire letter is really written with fatherly love. When a father loves his child, he suffers with that child in the mistakes that have been committed. And if a father truly loves his child, that father will go after his child with everything he has. All the while with his eyes and his heart being fixed on a definitive end. And that is seeking to restore that child to the safety of the truth. A father that loves his children will stop at nothing to keep them from destroying themselves. And throughout this letter, I hope that you have seen very clearly Paul's approach to these people that he loves as his own children in the Lord. Beloved, we see this in our own lives, and we see it in the lives of the people that we are surrounded by. A father who only wants to restore the peace for his own sake, who just wants people to fall into line for his own selfish and vain motives, is the one who is known quite often for being harsh. His response to the foolishness of his children is quite simply just to lash out at them. He is the screamer, the yeller. He is often the abuser. He only wants to restore the peace for his own sake. And he's really not that concerned with the welfare of his children. And I know that sounds harsh, but I would guess that we all know these types of fathers, whether they be in our own families or an acquaintance or perhaps we have some of it even in ourselves. You tell yourself that you love your children and maybe to some extent you certainly do, but honestly, 
you really do not love anyone as much as you love yourself. And so really all attempts at discipline are aimed more at dealing with anyone who would dare to ever cross you. And never actually focused on restoring one to the safety of the truth. But Paul's not that kind of father, is he? We see Paul laboring desperately to get his sheep to heed his voice. Not so that he can point them out in the crowd and say, look at the way my sheep heed my voice. No, he does it in order that they will be safe. In order that their joy will be full. In order that they will bring glory to their heavenly father. As you read this letter, you hear Paul's concern for these people. And it becomes very clear that he only wants what is absolutely best for them. Even if it meant that he himself should suffer for them. Paul would gladly decrease if that meant that the Lord Jesus Christ would increase in their lives. That faith might flourish within all of them. He loves them as children. He wants what is best for them. Beloved, it's always beautiful to look at Scripture and see the different ways in which it speaks to us. Though this letter clearly lays out for us the the glorious doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and though it defends it brilliantly, there is so much more than just that for us to see here. We learn what it means to lead in the church of Jesus Christ. We learn what is required to be a shepherd of the flock of God. Not just a guru of your own silly band of followers, but a shepherd of God's sheep. We learn what it is to be a true father. Paul's tone, starting in chapter 3 of this letter, has been somewhat harsh, even desperate at times. He has told them that they were foolish, that they had been bewitched. He questions whether or not his labor over them had been in vain, an, an absolute waste of time. He has had to stir up their memories regarding the past by asking them, Questions that undoubtedly had to have stung the Galatians more than just a little. Remember, he said, are you now so foolish, having begun in the spirit, will you now be made perfect in the flesh? They were questions that he didn't even really need to answer because as soon as they heard those questions, they felt the sting of the answers behind them. But Paul never stays there in that tone. And I'm sure you've noticed that. He constantly brings them back to the point of why it is that he is being so stern with them. It's because he loves them and he cannot just sit idly by and do nothing when he sees that the fundamental message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is being twisted and perverted among them. And sadly, at this point, even by them. 
So today, as we look to chapter 4, verses 8 through 18, we see Paul once again go to using very strong language. And I want to encourage you this morning to see the love of Paul in it. A true father to these people. Even in words that we might all on the surface at least consider to be a little bit harsh. As Paul once again stirs up the memory of his beloved sheep and calls on them to remember where it was that they came from and where exactly it is that they are going to. And so it's with all that in mind, I ask you to turn with me to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians and follow as I read verses 8 through 18. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul speaking says, But then, Indeed, when you did not know God, you served those by nature which were not, are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Not only when I am present with you. This is the word of our Lord, and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning to be able to come before the truth of your word, and we pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us in this life. And that this beautiful Lord's Day morning, we would give our full attention to the truth of your word. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, that hearing that word, we would become transformed by that word for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you will, you will remember that Paul has just reminded the Galatians what their status as those who look to the promise of God, to the seed of Abraham, what that status truly was. They were no longer slaves under the stewardship or the guardianship of the law, but in fact, they were now sons and daughters, heirs of the Most High God and every eternal blessing through Jesus Christ. The very Spirit of God had been given to them and was now present in their hearts and was crying out to God as Father, Abba, Father. They were not slaves. They were now the legitimate children of Almighty God. And if they were children, then of course 
They were heirs. And having stirred up their memories towards the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul now sort of pauses and he reminds them of what they were before they had received the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith with such joy. Look at verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. The Galatians, you will remember, were of course Gentiles. They did not have the law and the prophets. They did not keep the ceremonial law. They did not have the natural lineage of the people of God. And they did not know the temple rites. They were pagans. They were idolaters in every sense of the word. They had some sense of God, but the gods that they served were not the God. They were idolaters and they served images of their own vain imaginations. They were driven by superstition. They were dependent upon the fates. And simply put, they did not serve the one true and eternal God that we find revealed in his word. But when the Apostle Paul came to them, and he told them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the amazing grace of God, they embraced it. They believed. By the grace of Almighty God, through his precious gift of faith, they received his word with great enthusiasm and with joy. And as a result, they witnessed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And they trusted Almighty God for their salvation. And Paul is doing much more here than just trying to remind them of what it was like way back then in the Romantic past. He's making a much bigger point here. In a sense, he's bringing down the hammer on them here. He says, look, this is what you were like before the gospel. This is what you were like after you had received the word of God with great enthusiasm. Verse 9, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you return again to the weak and beggarly elements? to which you desire again to be in bondage. Paul is making a huge point here, beloved. And if we're not careful to take into account the entire context of everything that Paul has said up until this point, I want to tell you we really are in danger of missing it. He says, how is it that you now, knowing everything that you know, In fact, even being known by God himself, not simply knowing him, but being known by him, how is it that you now return to the weak and beggarly elements of the world? Why, having been freed, do you now desire to go back into the shackles of slavery? What are those weak and beggarly elements that they are returning to? Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid of you lest I have labored for you in vain. What have they returned to? Beloved, they have gone to the law as a means of their salvation, but it's more than that. And we cannot afford to miss it. I want you to understand they have returned 
to idolatry. Remember, these people were Gentiles. They were pagans. They did not receive the law. They were idolaters. And having received the promise, having embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ with joy, Paul says that now they have done what is unthinkable. They have returned to their idolatrous ways. Now perhaps you're scratching your head this morning and you're thinking, no, they didn't. (laughs) They didn't return to idolatry. They returned to the law. Not an idol. How could they be guilty of idolatry, Steve? You're being a bit dramatic, I think. Ask yourself this. What had they fashioned for themselves in the place of the clear revelation of Almighty God through Jesus Christ? It was the law. We need to see it. They were now observing days and months and seasons and years. They had decided to replace Jesus Christ and all of his merits with their own version of the law light and all of their own supposed merits. And Paul rightly calls it exactly what it is. It is idolatry. It's a return to the elements. He says, in in essence, they have returned to those things that were not God. They were idols. And beloved, I hope you see the point. When we leave behind the revealed word of God and we approach our justification before God in a way that is contrary to the revealed word, we have fashioned for ourselves something other than than the word of God and we are worshiping a God of our own making a God who submits to us and to our will a God who through our outward behavior and our movements becomes the debtor of man no matter how pious that may look I want to tell you this morning It is not the safety of the truth. And we need to see it. Do you believe that's a true statement? You remember those first few verses from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 16 through 18. They say this about Jesus and his word. And of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. God can only be known through Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of Abraham. The law and all the ceremonies all pointed to him. They were all fulfilled in him. Our fathers in the faith looked forward to him. It is through the revealed Christ that we know God and that we know salvation. And brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no other way. This is the word of God. 
And when we trust in our own strength, when we trust in our own supposed abilities, our own legendary acts of morality, and we are actually so ridiculous as to look into the holy law of God and find ourselves looking pretty righteous. We have written a doctrine of justification of our own fashioning to suit our own vain ambitions. And when we imagine that God condescends to our whimsical imaginations, we are serving a God of our own making and not the God clearly portrayed for us in the pages of sacred scripture. Do you see the point? It is idolatry to trust in anything other than Jesus Christ, his work, his righteousness, him alone to justify sinners before a holy God. Do you get a sense of the wickedness that is present when you and I choose to live lives of self-righteousness, self-centered, self-preserving, self-glorifying Christianity? It's heresy to think that Almighty God will not act in accordance with His Word. And that is exactly what we do when we seek to move God to justify us based on any other inferior merit than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has dealt a crushing blow to these Galatians in telling them, that they had returned to idolatry. They undoubtedly felt the heaviness of this accusation against against them. We've already said the case has been laid out for them. And it should be more than enough to convict them. And Paul would be justified in letting this last series of strong words for these people just sort of hang out there in the air for a while. To really let the truth sink in. Everything he has said is true. And he could leave the argument here. And he could let them think about those words. I am afraid lest I have labored for you in vain. But again I remind you Paul is not seeking to destroy them. He is not out to get their behavior in line so that they will better represent Paul. He's not seeking now in their folly to name them as his enemies. He's not being snarky because these people are fools. I'm not going to dig into that one this morning, but I think we in the Reformed world could really learn something here for sure about our interactions with others and with one another. He is seeking to open the truth to faith within them in order that they might run to the safety of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And we have to see it. And like a father who only wants to see his child restored, he goes back to his deep love for them. He always gives them just enough and then he pulls back to let them know that he is giving them the truth because he loves them. Look at what he does. Verse 12, he says, brethren. Paul goes back to calling them his brothers and his sisters in Christ. He says, all these things are true. 
You could not have anything more wrong than you have in this very situation. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. I urge you, become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Paul is saying, brothers and sisters, love me in the same way that I love you. I've spoken harshly. I said some things in this letter that probably hurt you to hear, but understand, I tell you because I love you. And I want you to know that this has nothing to do with your representation of me. You have not offended me with your actions. I'm not attacking you out of revenge or anger or indifference. You have not offended me, but God. You have not trampled on my well-worded gospel message. You've trampled upon the gospel message. And I point it out to you. Not to just point the finger. But to stop you from destroying yourselves and perverting the very message of hope that we all live for. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ It gives us any purpose whatsoever to fight through this life. A life that is so often filled with very real pain and very real suffering. Because of Jesus, we can look past the fading things of this life and we can live with real, tangible joy and peace and comfort and rest knowing that one day we will all worship together at the foot of his majestic throne in glory we can live our lives in gratitude to God because of him and because of this message of hope Paul continues to call on them to remember their love for him even as they realize his great love for for them. Look at verses 13 and 14. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Some have said that he's referring to that thorn in the flesh. And so they perceive then that the thorn has something to do with Paul's eyes because in the next verse he says that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. Beloved, in my mind, it's really a rabbit trail to make more of what we have here than we do. The truth is, Paul is making another point about the way in which they received him. And I tend to agree with John Calvin and with others who say that Paul is referring to his own diminished appearance. He says that even though he was weak and frail and visibly beaten up by life, when he came to them, even though there was nothing spectacular about him, nothing wonderful about him, they heard his message. And they had, by the grace of God, embraced it, and so they embraced him. I want you to understand, Paul's life had literally been poured out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt that his intense, 
physical suffering for the cause of the gospel had waged war upon his appearance. Long gone were the days of being the respected Pharisee scholar in his beautiful robes. Paul had given up everything. He had given up all the filthy rags of an empty husk of religion. And he had put on the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he reminds them that they loved him anyway. They would have given their own lives for him. They would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to him. And so he asks, where now is that blessedness? Where is that warmth and the joy that I saw when I was last with you? Do you now really take me for an enemy because I tell you the truth? And he turns his attention once again to those who had crept in, slithered into the church in his absence, and who had caused so much confusion and robbed the people of their peace and joy and got them to trade their freedom for chains. Those wicked false apostles, and he's speaking of them in verse 17, he says, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. Beloved, I I want this to hit home. (laughs) Paul is getting at the true motive for legalistic preaching. The true motive for the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and their ilk from this time until Jesus comes again pride pride they want faithful followers who will lift them up Paul has told them the truth and no doubt it hurt them to hear it and he says that he knows that the false apostles who he does not even bother to name anymore he says them they He knows that they court you. He knows they come after you, telling you good things, things that are easy to hear. Filling your heads with the lie that they love the Galatians and they only seek their good. But Paul says, it is not good to be zealous in the things that these wicked men are zealous for. They only want to show you your need for them. For their rules. For their words. They've tried to put enmity between you and me because they want to create strife between us so they can come in and turn you towards being zealous for them. Beloved, it's what wicked men do. And it's not limited, of course, to these false apostles. It continues on in churches throughout this country, throughout the world for that matter. The first thing that you do to get rid of a pastor that does not live up to your additional standards or perhaps hold to your personal convictions is to undermine his authority. That's what they did to Paul. And it still happens today. Once a leader's authority has been undermined and his integrity or his ability has been called into question, 
Then they turned the attention of the people to themselves. And they show that they only want what is best for them. And the people are led astray. This is what happened to this church that Paul had founded. And he's calling upon the Galatians to recognize what had happened and to recognize the real evil behind it and to only be zealous in good things, not only when Paul was there physically with them, but always to be zealous for the word of God, to be zealous for the gospel. Those who arose to destroy Paul, in fact, arose to destroy Paul's message of hope. That by grace we are saved through faith, not that of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. Paul says to his flock, in essence, you love me completely when I came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to you in weakness. Now continue to love the gospel in my absence. Though he could not physically be with them, they had the glorious doctrine that he had left with them. They had the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul encourages them to be zealous for those things. Beloved, I hope that as we continue to look together at this letter, you see the parallels with your own lives. I know every week as I spend time preparing to preach, I find myself repenting of the heinous sin of self-righteousness. You understand, it creeps into our lives and it appears to be nothing less than the very best of intentions. Nothing less than godliness. And yet it devours our hope. It steals our joy and it chases away our peace. It tells us this is the way and the other way is only seeking to bring us down. It's the law of God after all. How could that be wrong? Beloved, I pray that we recognize it in our own lives. Fathers and mothers, I pray that you notice it in your children and that you lovingly point them to the truth of the gospel. I pray that the leaders of this church would, like Paul, lay aside our own desire to be loved and respected and followed and call out self-righteousness when we see it. It's a heinous sin. It's an idol. And I hope that together we are faithful to cast down any idol that would dare to plague the church of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as we do it, we would be motivated not only for the purity of the gospel, which I hope is a given, but for the purity of the church of Jesus Christ. And because of our great love for those that have been called by Jesus Christ to be a part of this body. And so, beloved, you have to ask yourself, where do you fit in? Do you love the church of Jesus Christ? And would you give of yourself for her like the Apostle Paul did? Are you zealous for the praises of men or for the glory of Almighty God? 
Self-righteousness will always lead you back to the weak and beggarly elements of this world. Even and especially through the so-called good things. Things like blind morality, pretended sacrifice, things that will motivate people to follow you, perhaps even glorify you. But the gospel doesn't do that. It will always lead you to the death of yourself and to your running to Jesus Christ and never letting go. It will lead you to him and his work and to the glory of Almighty God. Beloved, what does your life point towards this morning? Idols? Or the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the one that your religion points to will tell you everything you need to know about yourself. Amen?